Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 225. Today is Sunday the 26th of February 2017, and this interview is with Barney Lonis, who's a thought leader and the global digital leader at Mercer Consulting, one of the top 10 consultancies in the world. With a mixed background in industry and agency, Barney has great insights on the world of digital transformation. In this conversation, we discuss the state of the business, what are the keys to succeed in one's digital transformation program, the role of the CDO, the Chief Digital Officer, and about exciting new tech. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host and author of The Mindset, that's M-Y-N-D-S-E-T dot com, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes to the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to the quick. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Minter Dialogue. So today, piped in from Skype on his iPhone is Barney Lonis. Barney, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. So tell us uh, how, who you are and what's your mindset. Well, Minter, thank you very much for having me. Um, I am Barney Lernis, as you say. I'm a Chief Digital Officer at Mercer, uh, and I'm leading our transformation uh, here across our HR consulting business. Um, My mindset is uh, ever the explorer and traveler. Um, My my career and my journeys have always been about the exploration of the unknown, and my mindset is um, constantly interested in what's beyond the horizon, and uh, I'm an eternally uh, an optimist, sometimes um, <laughs> to my great disappointment. <laughs> well, that's where you pair up with somebody who's going to bring you back down to earth and some sort of <laughs> deep pessimist or something. So you you mentioned traveling. So tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are. You're in New York now with uh, Mercer, and uh, just give us a little bit of how you got to this position of CDO. Well, I've, um, I started my career in, in the UK. The year that Amazon was started, I think, is, is the way it goes. And I was working at a bookshop and, you know, we developed a competing product at Amazon, not, not quite as successfully, but nevertheless, it was, you know, a great kind of kickstart to a, a really fascinating uh, journey for me, you know, that's been digitally driven. Um, I was, I suppose, the first generation of digital natives. And... Um, I ended up working at Warner Brothers, running their, their digital business in Europe. And then I really wanted to, to, to get to Asia. I'd spent a little bit of time in Asia. Um, uh, I walked across China when I was younger. Hmm. And um, so I joined um, agency side. I joined uh, Isabar and then Ogilvy and ran their digital business in Asia for about eight years, which was fabulous and fascinating and exciting. Um, and then uh, I was keen to, to, to sort of get back to a different version of the cutting edge uh, of digital. And, and uh, I looked for a role uh, in, in the U.S. And, and that's how I ended up um, here in New York. That's brilliant. Well, we're going to get back to that, I'm sure. But just listening to you, it, it does seem that it, it, it is very much a cutting edge thing. And I'm sure it wasn't done, well, as intelligently, prospectively as you imagine. But, you know, you hit books, then you hit music. And it seems like the only thing you haven't done yet is pornography in terms of the cutting edge of those yet at the leading edge of the digital transformation. <laughs> That's a different podcast. <laughs> of course. So listen, um, in your, your travails now, you're working at Mercer in the States, which at some level, I, suspe- I suppose, and you can 
correct me if I'm wrong, is at the leading edge of digital transformation within businesses. You can correct me there. But then what's the state of digital transformation? How, how are we coming? We've been talking about it for a long time. We're working in businesses. Is it sort of a mature concept? Are we still years away from really getting it? Give, give us a little bit of a, your spin on how it's playing out in the landscape. Yeah, I mean, I think most is interesting. I mean, our industry is possibly the last industry, actually, to get on board that's sort of the digital train. Um, so in that sense, um, uh, you, you know, the industry around consulting, around sort of insurance, health, pension management, you know, has really not been disrupted that much today. And um but, you know, that it's in itself is quite interesting because it gives us a, a leapfrog opportunity to go sort of straight to a much more digitally, socially driven way of, um, you know, generating leads for the business on the one hand. Um, and it means that there is huge opportunity for us in, in the way that we engage our clients and our clients' employees uh, to help them manage their health, their wealth, and their careers. So we're developing digital platforms to help them do that. So the opportunity for us is is massive, and we fully recognize that. Um, and I think, uh, you know, digital transformation is, a, is the key business agenda for us. I mean, you can call it anything. You can just remove the word digital, and it becomes you know, the imperative to adapt your business and your practices and the way that you engage your colleagues and your clients um, to to a modern age. And um, we feel the, the pressure very much to do that from our clients and from our employees. And we also feel uh, the massive opportunity there. So, you know, digital transformation, I think, is a very real thing, um, uh, within uh, our business and agenda and, and, and you know, the industry. Um, and I think, you, you know, as you'll appreciate, it's a multifaceted kind mm. of agenda. It sort of touches every corner of the, um, the, the business. Right. So you, you mentioned we could take the word digital out. Why is digital such the transformation agent? Well, it's it's a bit of a platitude, isn't it? But I mean, it's it's the sort of the disruptive um, element that that, that it, it kind of affords every aspect of of your business um, to reimagine the way that the business operates um, when you can connect people across the globe and you can put them in touch with every single um, you know terabytes of information that, that, that you've got across the business. Um, and it, it's the way I think that um, helps our clients get what they need quicker, cheaper, and enables them to make better decisions. And it, it, it's the potential to improve um, businesses or, you know, ultimately lives, um, you know, when digital is kind of properly applied that I think is is the most sort of exciting and, and disruptive element that, that digital affords. And then, of course, you, you know, there are some lots of nuances and different flavors of digital um, that you can apply. So I think as a catch-all, um, you know, digital is, is, 
you know, has been the biggest disruptor for the last 20 years, and I think will continue to be for another 20 years. All right. So you mentioned uh, a number of industries which you're working with, including insurance. Yeah. And and, and you said uh, I, I sort of had a little take back thinking, well, is is not insurance in in total overhaul? I, I mean, so the way I, I I'm not an expert in it, so I, I I'm saying it a little bit innocently, but I say. Well, the Internet of Objects is going to change the way the data is being collated and the opportunities to evaluate people's risk in such a different way. Uh, There's going to be transparency on rates. There are the digital uh, Internet uh, pricing mechanisms. Yeah. How is it that they don't feel that they are in in the midst of it as opposed to maybe feeling... Or is it... I mean, maybe they do feel it now, but... Give us a little bit of a tissue around that idea. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's um, it's going to be a massive, massive overhaul for the um, insurance industry, and and they and we definitely feel it. Um, I think there are a couple of kind of driving forces there. Um, firstly, you know, it's the availability of data. I read this morning that Tesla is now offering lifetime insurance as well as maintenance across its uh, cars, right? So you pay for a lifetime's worth of maintenance and insurance. And when you think, and what Musk said was, was, listen, if the insurance companies don't play game on this, right, because we're going to crash less according to the safety features of the car and because we're fully aware of actually how sort of proactive maintenance will reduce the ultimate mm. costs of maintenance, that they can provide much, much more compelling rates. So his kind of gambit to the insurance industry was, well, you can either accept that as given and, and you know, then we'll work with you, or we're going to start doing our own self-insurance. But what I think underlies his confidence, as illustrative of what I think is interesting out there, is, is data. So He's got the data in his hands about, uh, you know, the frequency of crashes, the type of crashes, the circumstances, uh, the weather during those crashes or the time of day. I mean, they, you know, we can now fully understand the variables and use machine learning and AI to really kind of uh, dig deeper into understanding um, risk. And, um, you know, that can be applied across health insurance as well. You get um, Health IQ and a number of other kind of health insurers who are giving reduced uh, health insurance rates for people who can run eight-minute miles because their data says that people who have got that level of fitness are going to be that much less likely to have, you know, some of the big um, diseases that, 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 that um, you know, normally shove healthcare costs up. Um so within insurance, you know, it's a big data game. Well, so and so can, you, can we imagine a world? I don't know how, how fast you are in a mile. I don't think I can do, like, I don't know what I'm doing for my miles. But if I could come to uh, AXA or whomever and say, listen, hey, look, my watch says I do 734 minutes on average, five miles. And I want a lower rate. Are we going to get to that point where the customer is going to be able to come back and, and claim lower rates? I think it's, um, I mean, there's nothing stopping it from happening and it makes a good headline. And I think, you know, it, it, it will attract a tribe of people, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
And so I think we will see that happening. I'm, I, I think, uh, you know, the, definitely things like uh, sort of real-time insurance for, mm. you know, uh, travel or for, uh, you know, adventure sports, you know, that sort of thing is, is coming much more prevalent. I think the difficult thing in, in healthcare is part of the complexity of healthcare overall, which mm-hmm. is is that, um, you know, the biggest costs are, are, are really the unforeseen events. Um, right. You know, you hope they never happen to you. But if you get a kind of a serious illness and you need long-term healthcare, um, then that's really the event that you're insuring against. So the notion that you go sort of deeply micro on health insurance and and can start negotiating your rates probably isn't realistic. Not yet. Um, I mean, what about if we add in some genomics? So I have your genetic tape. I now know that you are 33% more likely to have X. Then uh, all of a sudden, that's a, a that's a, a wicked tunnel to go down, eh? Yeah, well, you know, and I think the government and and kind of, you know, there is a lot of kind of legislation and and governments are really sort of saying that, um, you know, that's a very dangerous path to go down. Are are the governments Uh, quick enough to react? um, uh, Probably never is the answer, is it? Yeah, I mean, it seems Uh, as it's going at such a pace. How how are legislators even staying up with uh, things? They don't even have time to read the bills that are put in front of them in many in the states anyway yeah no i i i think it's um it's a big issue although sort of legislation will um you know i think it's very important that when it comes to things like healthcare, um that you know the government does get involved so that um you know individuals are not disadvantaged through um you know biometrics and um you know, sort of their their DNA or their natural, potentially natural uh, disposition to towards long term disease or not. I mean, I think that's um, you know, the the healthcare system is is very fragile overall. So I think um, you know, we will, hopefully we will stay away from some of um, you know those issues for a while. Mm. So you, we're talking about digital transformation and uh, the speed at, with which it's progressing. You who lived in Asia and, uh, of course, England, as well as now in the States, how, how would you describe, do you feel that there's any geographic propensities with regard to digital transformation? In other words, is one zone leading the charge or is it sort of this zone is doing better in that type of transformation? Do you have any reading on, on how it's moving? So are we in Europe, Old man, you mean you're in mainland Europe? Uh, are we retard à terre? Are we, you know, the end of the bus, or where are we? How are we doing? Yeah, I think it's um, fascinating. I mean, my my feeling, having worked eight years across all of Asia, but particularly, I spent four years deep in China working with international clients like IBM and Nestle, and Chinese clients like Huawei, and. Um, you know, it, it very much felt like the Wild West, but it's a greenfield opportunity. So they, they, they're building their transformation agenda, um, not off the back of legacy systems, but mm. they're building these things fresh. Um, and they're also building these things without kind of existing revenue streams mm. to protect very often. So it's a pure growth opportunity. Um, and so it felt as if 
we shortcut many processes and red tape, you know, when it comes to innovation in Asia. Um, uh, we didn't always do things beautifully, but we got the job done. Mm. And I think we got product into the hands of consumers um, to address their core needs. As I say, it, it often wasn't as beautiful as it could be. Because if you look at, I mean, for example, if you look at a site like Taobao, which has driven the e-commerce in China, the user experience is awful. It's been one of the most confusing and sort of eye-watering sites you could ever go to. But the Chinese consumer didn't care because they could buy anything they wanted at a click of a button. So their sort of their threshold for accepting a sort of subpar product was was um, you know diminished really. So what kind of what kind of lessons could we learn? I mean, so making it unbeautiful is probably not an easy lesson to sell. Uh, is it? Is is there anything within the way that they operate? Because I mean, obviously, if you have a legacy system, you can't necessarily just vanish it, uh, and you're not operating with the same ha set of cards. But is there anything within their mindset and their uh, approach to, like breaking down silos or or whatever else needs yeah. to happen? I think, I mean, the lesson I learned there was be be very, very clear on the problem that you're solving. Um, don't get distracted by producing the best thing. Uh, just focus on the thing that solves the user's issues. Um, because then you'll get a product to market quicker and faster. And um, you'll be able to start generating revenue then. And I think in the U.S., the kind of the, 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 the threshold for your minimal viable product, as it were, the usability, there's a kind of um, the benchmark for what you have to achieve in order to even be considered in the marketplace tends to be a little bit higher. Um, but I always sort of think back, you know, even in the healthcare and insurance market here in the U.S., right, the issues that we're trying to solve for when it comes to helping people manage their healthcare or helping people manage their pensions and their long-term savings, at the moment, the situation for consumers is awful. It's just a horrible mess. People don't know where they stand in relation to their long-term investments, their retirement, their pension funds. Uh, cutting through the confusion of healthcare is, is just, uh, you know, very disempowering. So rather than creating the best solution. Actually, all we've got to do is slightly improve the current status quo and we'll have a market-leading product. And I think, um, you know, th th that's a very, very important lesson to learn, which is um, not to get distracted by the best thing, but just the thing that will get, you know, start to solve the problem in the market. Because not only financially is that a sort of a better approach to take, you invest less, less in the peripheral sort of needs, but you, you, you're investing in something that will sort of um, improve people's situation. So I think that's, you, you know, that was one core lesson I learned. Mm. Um, so the idea is really don't aim for perfect or best, but aim for action. Exactly. So be clear on the problem you're solving and solve minimally for that problem. Mm -hmm. um, That's cool. All right, so when we look at digital transformation, 
I mean, there's there are many, as you probably, you and I are both swimming in, people saying what needs to happen. But to what extent do you, how do you ascribe the role or the importance of customer centricity as part of a digital transformation program? Um, I think it creates uh, exactly the right uh, shared vision around which every person in the organization can rally. Um, but I do think, and I think sort of that clarity of vision of where are we collectively going and where can I as an individual within that business play a role to helping us get there mm -hmm. um, are critical parts of digital transformation. I, all, I always think that digital transformation and just organizational change a sort of interchangeable kind of terms here. Mm -hmm. Fundamentally, I see my my task as one of organizational change. Um, and, you know, in order to make people change, because a lot of it's behavior driven, mm -hmm. but to, I think, sh show them a clear vision of where you're getting to. Um, I think then, you know, the leadership narrative around that, that says this is the most important thing around which we're going to rally and go for, and this is important, you know, our lives and our existence depend on it, is, is, is the second thing. People have got to feel, you know, both the heat, that if they don't respond, something drastically bad is going to happen. Fear factor. But they need to be excited that the place we're going to is actually quite a, is a more interesting uh, place for us to be. Um, and which of those two is a bigger driver? I mean, you mentioned a little bit before, when you're in health or in insurance, per se, you could be doing this to save lives. So I, I would take that as a sort of a, a higher mission than just making money. And on the other hand, well, if you don't do it, you're screwed. So fear and, and you know, that sort of other driver. Basically, maybe what I'm trying to get to is, is how important is it to have that kind of a mission uh, because I see so many companies that, A, don't have a higher mission other than saving money for the shareholder for the next quarter, uh, or B, uh, do not have a shared or an implemented vision. They might have it written on the wall, but it's not happening. So it becomes, as they say in French, people, you know, BS, and therefore it doesn't have any value. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think it's absolutely critical. I, I think people are motivated by, they want to understand that they're doing something positive in the world. And so I think it's the sort of, um, the duty um, to, uh, you know, to make that happen. So the duty of leadership is is to, is to incentivize people with a kind of a positive message rather than, you know, fear motivates, but only in the short term, not in the long term. All right, you mentioned the leader and something that is um, most curious for me. So you have a couple of options. You know, first, we have an industry that has its head in the sand and that's sort of, they're still woggling along like, um, let's say, you know, people dealing with the high net worth and they think, well, we don't need it. We don't need digital in our world yet. Then there are the, uh, the CEOs who say, well, we think digital transformation is really important. I read in the Wall Street Journal, we need to do it. Let's hire a big consultancy, great one, Mercer, bring them in. And then, uh, and then uh, they can tell my team how to become digital. And there's a third type where actually the CEO is uh, actually the one who's fiddling with the uh, platform, checking out the apps, 
doing on Wi-Fi, experiencing digital uh, him or herself. Is is the th am I Barney? Not Barney. If I am I my Barney for thinking <laughs> the third one is the the way or or how do you see it? Yeah, I mean, I, I not every CEO can be the third way. I think um, it, it's you know it's too big uh, a bridge to gap sometimes. So I think, um, but I I think the people who succeed most. Um, try to be the third way, which is they, from the front, show people to be bold enough to go out and try stuff and to try the new and to experiment and, you know, to build a culture that says, you know, asking simple questions or silly questions is not a silly thing to do. So kind of in some ways exposing yourself for how little you know mm -hmm. uh, is actually the most intelligent way to approach change. And um, as I say, I don't think that every CEO will, will really be a hands-on sort of digital native, right? So it, that's unrealistic. But I think through their behavior, they need to demonstrate to their senior leadership the behaviors of giving it a go, of positively holding other people who do get it mm -hmm. up and giving them a platform to show how it's done. So I think, you know, a lot of success, and, and I think those are just classic leadership qualities, right? Mm -hmm. And, and so, so I think a lot of success in digital transformation sort of leans back on what you say is the sort of number three option, which is getting your hands dirty um, you know, setting aside budgets to enable people to experiment and get things wrong. Um, you know, uh, not allowing your senior management to pretend that things are okay, uh, you know, and doing the sort of the same stuff in the same way. Um, you know, one of the challenges we have got is in, in, in having an open conversation about where we've got significant gaps in our organization, skills gaps, capability gaps. And so, figuring out what those gaps are and then quantifying how much you need to invest to address them and then what are going to be the reasonable kind of ROI on those investments in what time scale, I think are sort of, you know, really, really vital components to making digital transformation work. You mentioned a CEO who may not be of the variety and that sort of made me think, ah, just hire a chief digital officer. Um, <laughs> let, let him do it all and let her do it all. <laughs> Um, is is that the solution? And uh, maybe more cynically, uh, is the role of the CDO a, by definition, short-term job? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I'm amazed that there are still CDO roles around in some ways. Um, but I've no doubt that for some businesses, they are one of the right ingredients to help um, chart the, the, the change and bring new ideas and fresh skills and, and to partner with, you know, the existing kind of leadership of a business to build their confidence um, in uh, how to change that part of the business. So I think, as I say, I think you could, um, you, you know, it slightly irks me around digital transformation or a CDO role. You know, it sort of says, um, it says fundamentally, I think, that the business needs to bring in a fresh level of thinking and skills. Um, 
so for a lot of businesses, it's just an honest recognition of where they are at in the kind of maturity curve. Um, ultimately, I think CDO roles probably do disappear. And in, in the more mature businesses, you just get a digitally enlightened CEO. You just get a very fluent COO um, uh, or, and CFO, you know. Who, yeah, not, to mention, well, not to mention the in, innovation do, the marketing do that. And everybody it, needs to be digital. Exa- well, I think that's the thing. And that's always been the danger about sort of pointing to a corner of the organization and say, well, that's the digital person is that by the real danger is that other people therefore think it's not their job. Right. So, exactly. It's, it's, it's delegated. So, um, I, yeah, you, you may take the Fifth Amendment on this one, but you're brought in as a CDO at Mercer. How much have you had to do internal CDO-ness as opposed to uh, helping the clients you're working with? So, you know, looking inward uh, and aligning the tools, mechanisms, uh, attitude within in order to help better bring digital transformation out in your clients? You know, it's, a, it's fascinating that. I mean, I would say, um, here, here I expose myself, probably 80% of it is internal hmm. because I can't do it all on my own. Right. And so I need to spend time building the advocacy internally right. so that we can better serve the external. So I actually spend most uh sort of most of my time building products that i think you know that will work for our clients but also about preparing the organization for how to change the way that it's doing things and and to service your customers presumably exactly and there's a very interesting book i, I don't know if you remember it wasn't a book really it was um, the clue train manifesto sure. you remember that uh, you'd be a sin not to have read it and and you know it, and it reads very very well even now and i think one of the most interesting takeaways that recently I've kind of thought about that was that it puts equal weight on the power and the value that you can build through internal transformation by better connecting your people, by giving them access to content. Um, And the value you create there, they say, in the internal marketplace is as large as the opportunity there is to create value through digital transformation externally. And I think that's very true. I suppose you need to somehow insert the customer nicely in the middle of that as well absolutely as i say i think you know people need to understand your 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 higher purpose and and the vision for how we're going to engage in our clients and service them and how we're going to collaborate with our colleagues and co-create with our clients i mean all of that i think needs to be fully centered around the end client or, or, or customer um but once that vision is created, then um, then I think you sort of you, you can break it down into little pieces. As I say, I think sort of the, the understanding your gaps in your ability to deliver that that vision yeah. is, um, I think, my key role. And last question is sort of a quickie, uh, Barney. What is which of the new technologies out there? Because you know, as I'm, I said before we got on, I'm, I'm writing this book on it. How would you describe what it would be the the new technology if you had to pick one which uh, most excites you or scares you in terms of uh, the revolution and the and the disruption? I think for us probably blockchain. Explain. I think from a personal identity, management of data, management of your health data, of your wealth data, that sort of 
I, I, I think it's sort of got fascinating disintermediation potential in healthcare, in career management. Um, and I think this uh, is, you know, hopefully going to put an individual in control of their data. Um, and um, but but I think it's it, it's really the, the most exciting um, development that I think applies to all of our kind of areas of interest in wow. a massive way. All right. So give, give just explain this for a second. Unpack that a second. Blockchain to manage my career. For example. Yes. So, um, if you think around your skill sets, your experience, um, uh, and um, if you understand, if you better understand your capabilities, and if you better understand what capabilities other people are looking for, um, then you can sort of build a path to grow skill sets or capabilities that, that, that are going to help you progress your career. Um, it could be that that sort of bundle of data uh, around sort of who you are and what your skill sets are could be shared out there in the marketplace to identify opportunities that, to enable you to you know, move location or move into another industry. So they, I, I, I think it's a sort of it, it's a slightly sort of far off use case, uh, but it's it, it's a viable use case if you think around how you set your goals around career, health, and, and, and wealth, I think. Um, but I think the, the use cases around, you know, health data are probably stronger and more obvious. Right. I, uh, I, that's why I jumped in it, because I mean, I just, so I'm, I'm imagining this world where we, I, I, I have a, a location where I can dump all my, or and have validated all my skill sets. And, and instead of having headhunters, um, where you know you go into the open market and you're looking for this set of criteria, and then we work on a project together. I jump in, I move, do, and then it just it's a it becomes so much more fluid. In as I'm just imagining how that would play out. I mean, that's going to be presumably a decade away or something. But I think so. But in 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 many ways, the it's very existential, isn't it? Mm. The, the thought about am I doing the right thing? Am I working? Is this job really fulfilling me? Am I meeting my fullest potential? And could I be using my strongest unique skills in an area that would make me happier and more fulfilled? You know, that there is no bigger, more fundamental question, I think, to existence than, than that. And if we can help people unpack that in some ways, if we can help them sort of understand some of their kind of innate skill sets better and where uh, they're most needed in new industries or new places, then I think there are fascinating possibilities in the kind of the game of life. You can game of, gamify a sort of a longer term uh, view on life that also incorporates, you know, health and family and where you live. And in many ways, I think that's very much of the moment. I think there's sort of the new generation uh, uh, coming into the workforce want to live like, want to live life like a journey. And I think that this notion around career and data points and better understanding your kind of core skill sets and how they can be used is rather fascinating. Makes me want to feel want be young again, um, Barney. That's wonderful. So thanks for coming on. It's been absolutely scintillating stuff. Um, how, what's the best way someone can 
contact you or, or follow what you are up to? Um, they can follow me at Barney Lowe on Twitter. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm always on Twitter and uh, I try and encourage, you know, my colleagues to, to kind of get on there and share. And um, uh, yeah, so follow me on Twitter and I'll, I'll follow you back and I look forward to joining the conversation there. So. Beautiful. Hey, listen, have a cracker of a day. I hear it's beautiful over there. So enjoy your day, your weekend. And thanks for being on the show, Barney. Thank you so much, Minto. It's good to talk. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minto Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com, that's mindset with a Y, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please do rate it in iTunes, that really makes my day. Happy trails, and enjoy Josh Sachs's Painted Fingers. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray. You mentioned in your lack of self-security Oh, I wouldn't care about the art form As long as you would feel warm Wrapped in canvas, hold me tightly Slowly we would paint a lover's portrait With all your favorite shades
Imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. This podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from B2B SaaS CEOs who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed. You will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about and keeps talking about and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so.